Our theme for January, as you have seen already probably on the front of your program there, is, is there not a cause? And I'm going to preach on it several times, and we're going to talk about it a lot this month as we observe our stewardship month. Of course, the phrase comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you would turn there in your Bible this morning, and the phrase is found in verse 29 there, when David asked that of his brothers, is there not a cause? Now, the account is the famous story, though, the whole chapter of David and Goliath, and really a very, very important passage of Scripture because the story of David and Goliath is more than a morality tale of some kind. The story of David and Goliath is the sto- represents the story of the conflict of the ages, the conflict between good and evil, the conflict between light and darkness, the conflict between God himself and Satan. And it's certainly a question for our times. If there's ever been a relevant passage of Scripture, it would be 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 29. Is there not a cause? I'll ask you to stand, please. We're going to read from that chapter, and I'm going to read just three or four verses here to begin, and then we will go down through it. I won't have time to read the whole account because it would take about 50 verses and a long time to read. But in 1 Samuel chapter 17, now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle. And they were gathered together at Shokah. And in verse 2, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. And they pitched by the valley of Elah, and they set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley, and they tell us that valley is only about a hundred yards wide, a very narrow little valley with a little brook running through it. There was a valley between them, between the two armies, and there came out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath. And so this very famous account begins. Thank you, and you may be seated. I want you to notice with me, first of all, something back in chapter 16, though. And we'll go back to chapter 16, and we'll go to verse 12. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy. And ruddy means redheaded. Do we have any redheaded people here today? If your hair is red, you may be kin to little David. He was a redhead. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance. He was good-looking, goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil, Samuel the prophet of God, and he anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so we see David, number one, a man anointed of God. A man anointed of God. And boy, if that doesn't make you special, there's nothing else that would. Here's a man who God's prophet 
Samuel has come to visit him in his home there in Bethlehem and has anointed him with oil. And at the moment he did, the Holy Spirit came upon him. The book of Acts chapter 13 and verse 22 refers to David as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. A man who had a heart like the heart of God himself. You know about David, no doubt. He was Israel's greatest king. He was also a great, great warrior. Over and over and over, he led the nation's armies into battle once he became the king. You also note that there was a deeply spiritual side to David, that he wrote most of the book of Psalms, the book of devotion, the book of worship, the book of praise to God. So this is a deeply spiritual warrior king. We also know that he was a skilled musician. He played the harp and uh, at one time was invited to to the palace to play for King Saul when he was in a state of depression. We also know about David, he was not perfect. And so we don't elevate him to the point of deity or something like that. We know that he was a man who fell into sin. He committed horrible sin, adultery. He even conspired to have a man's life taken. We know also something that's very, very relevant to us today. We know that David was a very poor parent. And because of that, in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, it said he never told his children no. He never said no to the kids. And you know what? His children broke his heart. Every single one of his children went astray from the values of their father. A very, very poor parent. It didn't take on his children. And part of it, it was his own character. Now, the account then actually begins here in chapter 16 that we're going to deal with in chapter 17 when Samuel the prophet goes over to Bethlehem. God is about to set Saul, the king, on the shelf because Saul has repeatedly, repeatedly over and over, Saul has disobeyed God. And God said basically, I'm going to replace him and I'm going to replace him with this young man, David. And so God led Samuel to the home of a man whose name was Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. And Samuel says, I'm here. I'm looking for the next king. God has sent me to your house. And so they brought the sons out, all eight of them. They started with the oldest. And Samuel looked at him and said, no, that's not him. And number two and three and four and five and six, no, 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 none of them are the man that God wants to sit on the throne of Israel. And finally, Samuel said, is there any more? And Jesse said, yeah, I've got one more son, my youngest son. He's out there in the field somewhere keeping the sheep, which was the lowest, most menial job that he could be given. Well, go get him. And so they fetched David to come. He's the youngest son. The Bible describes him here. He's ruddy. He's a red-headed young man with a good open countenance and handsome. He's good to look at. And he's brought before 
Samuel, and Samuel says, that's him. And he says, son, God has called you to be the, ki- the next king. And he knelt down, and Samuel poured the anointing oil upon him, prayed over him, consecrated him to the cause of Christ. And so David will now become the next king. Now, Saul doesn't know that yet. And I'm not sure that David understood the importance of what had just transacted here. But there's something very important in chapter 16 and verse 13. And I don't want you to miss it. He anointed him in the midst of his brethren. The other brothers saw what was happening. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day on. How do you explain the greatness of David? You explain it through the fact that it is not by might, it is not by power, it is by my spirit. He was a spirit-filled, spirit-anointed man. And so we see David anointed of God. But number two, we see David, God's warrior, a warrior for God. And so in chapter 17 now, we come over to the main story here in verse 3. The Philistines are on one side of a mountain. There's a valley in between, a little narrow valley, and there is a mountain on the other side, of course, and there is the armies of God squared off and looking at each other. They've been there for over 40 days. They've been there for over six weeks. This is not a new thing. The Philistines had invaded Israel at this point. They were a wicked, wicked, warlike, aggressive people. They worshiped Baal, an idol god, and their, their cruelty was legendary. Everybody knew when you said the word Philistine, they were, these were vicious and cruel people. So cruel, in fact, that they practiced child sacrifice. And when you read the Old Testament, it talks about people who put their children through the fire. It's referring to child sacrifice as practiced by the Baalites. Can you imagine handing your baby over to a Baal priest and him placing it in the fire and watching that poor little thing burned up as a sacrifice, as an offering to this vicious god, Baal? This was the Philistines. And in verse 4, they had, 3 and 4, they had a champion. A champion in those days was one who would go out and the best fighter in the army, he would, he would go and represent his nation, his army. And sometimes there would be two champions from opposing sides. They would fight each other, and whoever won, that would be the winner of the whole battle. In other words, they were surrogate substitute figures for the entire army. And this is Goliath here, described in verses 4 through 7. It talks about his height. He was between 9 and 10 feet tall. He was covered with armor, and the Bible describes some of his armor. In fact, there was not any place on him except his face that was not covered in his armor. He had armor, mail it's called, up and down his whole body. He had greaves on his legs, which would be like, they would look like the, uh, you know, they would come up brass fittings that fit over the, the calf, the front part of the leg, the shins. 
And he was protected there, and he was protected all the way up. He even had a young man who was with him who bore a shield and went before him to stop the arrows that someone might shoot at him with that shield. And here's this man with this spear, and it gives the weight of it. And if you translate that into our weight, it was about a 15-pound spear. Can you imagine throwing a 15-pound spear? This is a big, big man. This man is the hulk of his day. This man is bigger than any of the NFL or NBA athletes that we think of as being large men today. And so here he is. And then look in verse 16, if you will. There's an interesting thought about him. The Philistine drew near morning and evening to the armies of Israel and presented himself for 40 days. For 40 days, he'd been walking out, going down into that valley, and taunting the army. Why don't somebody come out here and fight me? And he was, a, he was the first trash talker. So he was trash talking the army and putting them down and, 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 and saying to them, you're a bunch of cowards. Come on out here and fight me, and I'll feed your flesh to the, to the birds of the air. And for 40 days, he had done this. And boy, the army was so intimidated. They were so full of fear. Nobody had taken him up on that. And meanwhile, back in Bethlehem, Jesse, David's father, has prepared some food. And three of his older sons are now in the army over here at Elah. And so he says, David, I want you to take them some bread and take them some food over there. They had to provide their own. So in verse 23 of chapter 17, David arrives on the scene here, and as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. He came out of the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, and David heard him, all his trash talking, his attempts to intimidate. He heard him blaspheming the name of God. Probably, in all probability, this is the first time David had ever heard profanity because the Jews regarded the name of God so with such sacredness, such a degree of sacredness. He would have never heard anybody use God's name in Israel in those days. And so David looks, and here's this giant, and David has volunteered to take this food up there to his brother's. And as he stands there in verse number 25, they also tell him that the king has put a reward out on his head. The reward is anybody that will rise up and kill this giant, number one, the king is going to give him riches. He's going to be well off financially. And secondly, the king is going to give you his daughter to marry. Whoa, you're going to be in the royal family now. This is getting to be a pretty good deal here as it goes along. And then thirdly, and this would be the one that would appeal to me the most, you'll never have to pay taxes again. Wow. Well, David was convinced, and he volunteered. And he went to his brothers, first of all. He's standing with them. And he says, I'm going to go and fight him. And they said, you are crazy. You've always been sort of a cocky little fella. Well, you, you're crazy. You can't go. He's going he's to eat you up, David. 
And then he keeps on talking about it, and somebody takes him to, the, to Saul, who is present there. And in verse 32, notice what David says. He says, thy servant. So David is really not cocky. He's humble, but his brothers don't like the fact that he had volunteered. Thy servant will go and fight him. And he says that to Saul. And Saul says, well, you can't fight him. You're not able to fight him, David. You are not able, he says there. So everybody's encouraging him, aren't they? Like everybody else that ever tried to rise up and do something great in their life. His family said, oh, you can't do that. And even the king, his leader, said, you can't do that. And David said, oh, I think I can. And I don't know if he was motivated more by the riches, the king's daughter, the not paying taxes. No, I don't think so. I think the great motivation for him was the insult to the glory of God, the name of God himself. And so in verse 34, read with me there because it's such a powerful passage. David said to Saul, well, back when I was keeping sheep, there came a lion and a bear And they took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and I smote him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by the beard, and I smote him, and I slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. See, there's his real motivation. He has defied our army and our God. And, I, and so David says in verse 37, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said, okay, go. May the Lord be with you. You go on and fight him. And so he did. Now, I know you know that story, but to me, there's some really interesting details I've tried to share with you there. And boy, right there by that verse 37, you know, I made a note in my Bible. I wrote, great faith, great faith. You see, great faith is based upon the fact of past experience if we've been living for the Lord. Now, if you've been saved for a number of years and you've been living for the Lord and you've you've been doing His work, You have already discovered in your life past experiences where God has come through for you, and if he did it once, he may do it again. And so David is a man of faith. He said, he helped me kill that bear, and that bear wasn't any bigger than Goliath. He helped me kill that lion. That lamb was no stronger than Goliath. If he can do that, then he'll help me today. I'm counting on the Lord. Later on, he says, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. Let me stop there and apply that. Isn't that true today for us? As we face a new year, the battle is the Lord's. Verse 38, Saul offers David his armor. Here, you can put on my armor. It's the best armor in Israel. And David said, no, thank you. Boy, that is such a powerful little passage there, if you'll stop and think about it. You know, the note I put here, don't try to be something you're not. 
David can't fight in Saul's armor. I heard a man one time preach on this passage. His name was Curtis Hudson. He preached here years ago. And Curtis Hudson said about that passage, he said something I've never forgotten. He said, you know what? When you try to be somebody else, when you're David trying to wear Saul's armor, when you're trying to be somebody else, there's nobody there. Because you're no longer that yourself. And you're dead, sure not Saul. And the armor doesn't fit. And David says, well, I haven't even tried it. I haven't even practiced with it. Why would I want to put it on? Now, remember that. Don't try to be somebody else. Be yourself. God made you the way he wants you to be. He designed your DNA. God will use you just like you are if you're yielded to him. You don't need to try to put on somebody else's armor. In verse 40, it tells me about David's preparation here. He took his staff in his hand. He chose him five smooth stones out of the brook. He put them in his shepherd's bag, which was tied to his side, even in a script, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And so we now see this thing come into really, really sharp focus at this time. And in verse 41, Goliath comes out. The Philistine came and drew near to him. He had this man bearing his shield in front of him. <laughs> Here's this 10-foot-high man, all covered in armor, with, a, with another man in front of him holding a big shield. And here's this little Jewish boy, about 17, 18, 20 years old at the most. And he's got a sling and a staff and five rocks. Boy, what a picture. What a picture of what God can do through somebody yielded to him. And so Goliath begins to mock him. Look in verse 43. The Philistine said, am I a dog that you come out to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come over unto me. I'm going to give your flesh unto the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. And so David here is mocked and belittled. But notice here David as he approaches this Philistine. There was a phrase I read in one of the commentaries and research that I was doing for this message. And it's a great description of him as he approached Goliath. He said, this man described David like this, his noble heart was pulsating with divine patriotism. His blood was hot and steel entered his soul. <laughs> what a description. That's David, this young man. And so he says to Goliath here in verse number, what is it, 45, you come to me with a sword and you have a spear, you have a shield. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Stop. Circle the word Lord in your Bible. If you notice in your King James Bible particularly, it spells the names of God in different forms. This is a capital L, but smaller, but yet capital letters, L-O-R-D. Every time you see that, hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament, here's what that means. That word Lord, spelled like that with that spelling, is 
the Old Testament Jehovah. So you could write Jehovah there for the Lord. In the name of Jehovah, the Jehovah of our host, the Lord of the arm, the God of the armies of Israel. But here's what's interesting. The Old Testament word Jehovah is the New Testament word Jesus. Same word, except when you get into the New Testament, in the Greek, it changes over from Jehovah to Jesus. Do you know what David is saying? You're coming to me with a sword and a shield and an armor bearer and all this stuff. I am coming to you in the name of Jesus. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. Well, there's power in that name. There's power in that name. We sung about it this morning, and I could tell you were singing it from your hearts. Look in verse 48. Oh, no, I, wanted to, I almost skipped something. I want you to go back to 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. There's confidence in God. There's faith. And I'm going to smite you and take your head off of you. And I'm going to give your carcass to the fowls of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. I want all the world to know that there is a God in Israel. I'm doing this for a testimony of the greatness of God. This is his motive. And I want all the assembly to know in verse 47, the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's. And he'll give you into my hands. And then the battle was on. But I want you to know David's behavior. I want you to look at verse 48. In fact, you want to circle that word ran. David hasted and ran. I mean, that's enthusiasm. That is a man who, a man who is running. There's nothing tentative about him. He's not holding back. <laughs> He's going at it with all that he has. He is running at this 10-foot high giant. The last thing that old Goliath ever heard was the whirring of that slingshot. That rock came out of there and came and hit him right in the forehead, right between the eyes, the only place on his body that was not protected by his armor. And it penetrated his head here, it says. It penetrated. David put his hand in the bag, verse 49. He took the stone out. He slang it. That's a good word. He smote the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead, went into his brain. He fell on his face. Somebody has so wisely said here that Goliath was stoned out of his mind. Boy, he sure was, wasn't he? He hits the dirt. He's dead. And David runs to him. And he takes out his sword. David didn't have a sword. He took out that big sword of old Goliath. And he cut his head off. He kept his promise <laughs> of verse number 46. He said, I'll take your head off. Well, he kept his word, didn't he? He beheaded him. Now, that's a little cruel for your taste today. I know some of you politically correct folks. You're a little refined. You don't want anybody to kill anybody. It doesn't matter what the cause, but. Uh, I'm going to stand with David on this. I'm, I'm going to treat David with respect. Anybody can sling a stone like that. So. And so David beheaded him, kept his promise. Now, 
There's the story in great detail. But look with me. Lastly, David the man with the cause. David is the man with the cause. In verse number 29, go back there and read it again. David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? If you look in the margin of your Bible, you'll see little phrases where the translators of our King James Bible put a phrase that was what's called an alternative rendering, meaning we could have translated it that way, but we chose to translate the way you have it. But there's an alternative rendering there by verse 29, and here it is. It says, is there not a matter of great importance? Is there not a matter of great importance? That's the definition of a cause. What is a cause? A cause is a matter of great, great importance. Number one, it can be a movement. It can be a principle. It can be a belief. It can be a person, can be a cause. A cause is a deeply held conviction, number two. It is a belief for which I'm willing to suffer and even willing to die. David risked his life because people risk their lives for a cause. You see, it's more than a feeling because feelings come and feelings go. Feelings change. It's more than an opinion An opinion, you can hold an opinion and do nothing about it. But you can't do that with a cause. A cause is a deeply held conviction that you're willing to suffer for, even to die. It's like Daniel when they said, you can't pray for 30 days to any other God. He opened the windows. He didn't even try to hide it. He was in your face about it. He opened the windows of his his room. And he prayed in the public eye before the people because it was a cause to him. It was more than just a a, a practice, a feeling, an opinion, a habit. He said, I must pray. That's what a cause involves. A cause compels me to action. I can't sit on the sidelines if I have a cause. Did you hear me? If Christianity is really your cause, you can't sit on the sidelines. It's it's more than attending church or writing a check, as important as those things are. It absolutely compels your involvement. In the great words of Dabo Sweeney, who says, all in. You can't play for my team unless you're all in. What he's saying is football's got to be more than a game that we play once a week. It is a cause. It's the cause of Clemson. It's the cause of the team. The problem with Christianity today is many are not all in. If I found out any one thing in 53 years now preaching the gospel, it's that if you could get everybody all in, you could could win the world of Christ in a few years. 
It's the founding fathers. It was a cause to them. Freedom was not a political plum for them. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were not sitting around thinking, man, if I could just, if we win this war, I get to be president. No, they wrote down what it meant to them. We pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor because it's a cause. Is there not a matter of great importance? Is there not a cause? A cause gives courage. A cause overcomes fear. The whole army had their eyes on Goliath, the problem. David had his eyes on God, the solution. You see, if, you get, if, if this becomes a cause, the cause of Christ to you, your fears will melt away in the light of the work and the requirements and the needs of the world. Everyone told David he would fail, but they had their eyes on Goliath. He had his eyes on God, and he said, God has not failed me yet. He helped me kill a bear and a lion. A cause is greater than ourselves. A cause means we will deny ourselves. We'll change our plans if it will forward the cause. We'll inconvenience ourselves if it will forward the cause. You remember the name Pat Tillman? He was the California high school all-state, all-American football player. He went to Arizona State University. And in 1997 was the PAC Defensive Player of the Year. That year, he made over 200 tackles as a safety. Graduated, got married, was drafted in the seventh round of the NFL to the Arizona Cardinals. He was making $3.6 million a year. And he announced he would put his football career on hold because there was a cause He joined the U.S. Army in 2002, became an Army Ranger. And he wrote in his diary these words as he was in the midst of a great decision about what to do with his life. Quote, many decisions are made in our lifetime, most relatively insignificant while others are life-altering. Tonight's topic is the latter. It must be said that my mind, for the most part, is made up. More to the point, I know what decision I must make. It seems that more often than not, we know the right decision. Long before it's actually made, somewhere inside we hear a voice, and we intuitively know the answer to any problem or situation we encounter. Our voice will lead us in the direction of the person we wish to become, but it is up to us whether we follow the voice or not. For much of my life, I tried to follow a path I believed important. Sports embodied many of the qualities I deem meaningful, courage, toughness, strength, while at the same time, the attention I received from playing reinforced its seeming importance. In the pursuit of athletics, I've picked up a college degree, learned invaluable lessons, met incredible people, 
and may, it's made my journey much more valuable than any destination I will ever reach. However, these last few years, and especially after recent events, that is the attacks on America by Al-Qaeda, I've come to appreciate just how shallow and insignificant my role is. I'm no longer satisfied with the path I've been following. It's no longer important to me. I want to live for a cause greater than myself. I want to live for a cause greater than myself. So many people live lives of a miserable existence. They just go from day to day to day to day. No vision, no heart, just surviving because they don't have a cause. They don't have a cause. Tillman was killed died in Afghanistan on April the 22nd, 2004, killed by friendly fire, paid the supreme price because a cause doesn't always guarantee you victory, but it does guarantee you meaning. It guarantees you meaning. A cause has a moral dimension to it. For the Christian, it always is a righteous cause, a worthy and noble cause, a cause to which I give myself will always define my life. And when your life is over, the causes that you were involved in actually will be the definition of what you really live for and you lived about. David's cause was to kill Goliath and drive out the Philistines. And he believed in doing that on three levels. Number one, Goliath was attacking his God, his faith. He said to him, you have defied God, verse 45. Ladies and gentlemen, today our faith is being defied. And Christianity is in the crosshairs of a secular world today that would like to just absolutely obliterate your faith. There's a cause. And then Goliath was a threat to Israel, verse 10 and 11. Their national existence was at stake. Americans are not very steamed up about it. If they were, things would be different. Everybody's more interested in ball games and recreation and making money and all the stuff of life, some of it good. But the truth is we're losing our country. The truth is America's in a sharp decline right now. When are God's people going to rise to the cause? And then there was a personal threat. Goliath said, I'm going to feed you to the birds. So David knew he was going to, not only was his God affected, not only was his nation affected, but he was being affected. His life was going to be changed. Do you think that things are going to continue in the world as they are today and you're going to escape it personally? I don't think so. 
Now, you see, for us, our cause should be, and I hope it is, the cause of Jesus Christ. I have something greater than myself, something that compels me to action, something that will give me courage to overcome my fears, something that has the purest of all motives and, and, and the most righteous cause of all. I want it to define my life. It's a matter of the greatest importance, of eternal importance. It's the cause of Jesus Christ. And so today we start a new year. But we're not going to do what God wants us to do as a church on spare time and pocket change. Giving the Lord the little bit that's left over our discretionary time. We're only going to make the mountains move if we say, you know what? Jesus said, if you would follow me, let every man deny himself. Self-denial, a word not used in America. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Not a way to salvation, but the price of discipleship. 99% of the people sitting in this building say, I'm a Christian. Okay, you're saved, but are you a disciple? When and where are you denying self? And when and where have you taken up the cross, the instrument of death to your own desires? And when and where have we followed Christ at great cost? In 1939, the British King George VI gave his annual address to the entire British Empire on Christmas Day on radio. But this was not another year, just another year in 1939. War clouds hung heavy over the world, and in a short time, Britain would be fighting for its very existence against Hitler and his Nazis. To encourage the people that day, George VI read a poem and he, as he closed his address. It's entitled, God Knows written by Minnie Louise Haskins, who had been a missionary in India for many years and had come back to England and was a professor at the famous London School of Economics. Think about these words. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. He replied, Go out into the darkness. Put your hand into the hand of God. That's better than light and safer than a known way. And so I went forth. And finding the hand of God, I trod gladly into the night. And he led me toward the hills and the breaking of day in the lone east. Put your hand in the hand of God. If you've never been saved, that's where it begins. And number two, boy, what good advice for the new year. Put your hand in the hand of God, and He will lead you to the hills, the higher ground, and to the breaking of day, the light.
the guidance that you need in the new year. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please, and our heads are bowed.